Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in bodywork, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. It was a pleasure to be back in conversation today with Jeffrey Birch. Jeff is a certified advanced rolfer and has extensively studied and integrated into his hands-on therapies both cranial manipulation and visceral manipulation. He has developed groundbreaking new joint mobilization methods. Jeff received a BA in biology from the University of Oregon in 1975, after which he trained at the Dr. Idarov Institute in Boulder, Colorado, receiving his certification as a rolfer in 1977. He first practiced rolfing structural integration in London and later in Seattle and Honolulu before returning to his native Eugene, Oregon in 1989. At the time he was in London, there were only a half a dozen rolfers in Europe. He accepted invitations to rolf groups of people in Oslo, Stockholm, Trondheim, and Tehran. He now lives in Eugene, Oregon, offers continued education classes. Jeffrey Birch received his rolfing advanced certification in 1990, after which he again began studying at the University of Oregon, where he received a second BA in psychology in 1993 and a master's of science in counseling in 1995. Today's conversation, we spoke about some of the Rolfing 10 series history and its relevance today. Jeff's development of assessment methods from Baral's to his own, the release of his new book, his upcoming classes, working with Bone, working with different schools and in different cultures, a way of working with intuition, and much more. So with that, let's begin our talk. Hey, Jeff. Howdy. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi, Andrew. Howdy. Good to see you. Good there. Uh, actually, Nikki brings up a great point, which is I always call you Jeff, and she calls you Jeffrey. What do you, do you have a preference? Do you like Jeffrey? Do you like Jeff? Do you like Mister Birch? About the same in here, and and I've been called worse things, but <laughs> uh, so hey, let's just go for Jeff. Okay. Cool. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and the, th- the last time, it's funny, the last time we had a talk, the three of us, I, I was in Dubai, um, I guess it was probably about a year and a half ago, maybe, maybe I don't know when it was, would have been, could have been even two years ago. Uh-huh, a year was, and a half or so, I think. Even though we've talked before, like if we go over stuff we talked about before, there there may be people who are just tuning in that haven't gone through the back catalog. And so, you know, it's, and Nikki and I tell all the same stuff over and over again. So it's okay if you do as well. Okay. Uh, I think that's helpful. Uh, just for reference, our last chat um, was March 29th, 2021. I had a feeling it was March, 2021. Okay. So it is a couple of years, more than two years ago. All right. Great having you back on. Um we, in our last episode that we ha- had with you in March 21, 2021, we got to learn a bit more about you, the history of your work. And, um, and at, since that time, I took a class with you and which I really, really enjoyed and learned a lot of techniques. And one thing that came up in class was talking about the 10 series and where that how is that meaningful now with all the research that we have with touch therapy, fascia science, and um, and how that bridges with more of an osteopathic touch? So we know in the Rolfing structural integration world that there is um, a population that's really, really dedicated to the 10 series. And then on the other end of the spectrum, not so much. And we spoke a little bit about that in the class and certainly don't want to create any kind of negativity around the original work. But can we speak to a little bit of what you possibly have said in class so that maybe the 10 series isn't something that we need to hold so religiously, per se? Yes, uh, it's really interesting. Uh, the, the teaching of, of Rolfing has varied a lot 
over the years, sometimes by curriculum design by the Institute and sometimes by teachers doing whatever they want to do. And uh, in the era when I trained, uh, we were told repeatedly and with emphasis that the series is something to get beginning rolfers started. Uh, we were told, use this cookie cutter for five years, and that'll give you enough experience that you can start to see what people really need. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that means uh, in a minute. Um, <clears throat> and later, uh, spending some time with uh, Dr. Rolf's elder son, uh, Richard, who was the first person she trained to Rolf, uh, do Rolfing and who was uh, faculty chair at the time that I trained, he confirmed that in her own practice, uh, Dr. Rolf uh, usually didn't use the 10 series unless she was working with a student who needed to learn that. Uh, and that said, there are people who are dedicated to the series. And one can have a, a good practice and continue to grow as a practitioner developing the, the series for uh, the length of a, of a career. But in the era when I was trained, we were taught that that's training wheels that you should move beyond within a few years. And in terms of what touch one uses to get things done, it was also explicit that there is no rolfing technique uh, were, they were giving us a basic vocabulary of things we could do with our hands, but that uh, and if absolutely anything that will achieve the goals of rolfing is rolfing. Um, there's a famous story about Emmett Hutchins and a conversation he had with Ida Rolf, which I've confirmed, confirmed with Emmett Hutchins. Where Ida, where uh, Emmett asked Ida one evening after dinner, um, if I saw that you know, somebody's structure was coming along, but there was something around one hip that wasn't moving quite right, and we could see if we could breathe the periosteum on the bone there a little more, uh, that things would work better. And if we could achieve that change in the periosteum by saying a few magic words or by whistling a popular tune, would that be Rolfing? Ida Rolf's response was, what do you think? And uh, Emma said, um, well, uh, I think it would. And she said, I think so too. So <laughs> if one can, pretend, can potentially achieve the results, or if it's legal to achieve the results by magic incantations, that leaves a pretty wide field of things we can do that will achieve the alignment and uh, mobility and coordination goals that we have for structural integration. So coming back to the, the foundational work that a lot of, a lot of what Rolfing is, Rolfing, well, we'll say Rolfing, for hit their the the principles that were established is how we are orienting the work versus like the greater umbrella of structural integration because there's different schools and kind of have their principles too but we're basically coming back to to identify the work is applying a touch it doesn't necessarily be a half be a heavy pressure touch, but a touch to bring more organization in the name of structural integration for better functionality. That uh, absolutely, we uh, people apply various touches to achieve that, but we also have more tools for achieving uh, the results. Uh, speaking about touch, uh, interestingly, my practitioning teacher in 1977 was Peter Melchior, who eventually left to, you know, to be one of the founders of the Guild for Structural Integration. And his work was very gentle touch. We called him Peter the Feather. Uh, he was not in there with his knuckles and elbows and most of his uh, body weight to accomplish it. But we also have uh, Rolfing movement integration, which we're bringing people's awareness to how they move and helping them to make some different choices, also changes structure in the body. 
um, movement and structure, uh, two sides of the same coin, change either one, and the other one uh, has to change. Um, and then uh, perhaps you've read some of the uh, writings of uh, Japanese Rolfing teacher uh, Hiroshi Tayata, where he talks about even how one places oneself spatially in the room with the client can by itself influence structure. Uh, so uh, again, we were taught in my basic training, anything you can do that will achieve the goals of Rolfing is Rolfing. It's interesting you mentioned, uh, Hero has been on our, our show as well. Um, and in that show, I talked about Hero and I did a session. He worked uh, across the internet and, and still held space. But it's interesting because today I was in a group I was in was talking about how do you work with autistic children? And one of the things I suggested was be very spatially aware because there is a lot of sensitivity around the room. And it's it's something really uh, interesting to me just to how how space as a as a way to structure is and i don't want to go too much into that because that'll take away from the main excitement stuff of today but just to share that in as as, as something I, I find for where i am right now space is very very informative uh, especially from a, a nervous system functioning of of where is that that client in their in their safety yeah i've recently been reading in depth uh Hero's uh, article about the Japanese concept of ma, which has to do with spatial relationships and, and uh, pace. And you had brought up working with autistic kids or autistic people. And that was one of the examples that, that jumped right out for me or one of the places where I see application of that. Um, another uh, obvious one is working with animals. Uh, have a look at the movie Horse Whisperer. And he's extremely aware of spatial relationships and pace and working things out with the, the horses. Another, another thing to be aware of about the 10 series is that uh, Ida Rolf continued to reformulate that throughout her career. So uh, the way it was at the end of her life is not where it began. Uh, in the beginning, for example, it was a six series session, more or less like the six, first six sessions that we have now. And the first classes that she taught, which were in the UK, were two weeks long, three sessions a, a week uh, in them. And she quickly expanded that to three weeks and then eventually to six. I've seen notes uh, taken by osteopath uh, Isabel Biddle at uh, Idarol's 1954 Los Angeles class. And at that point, it's still only six sessions. Uh, there was then added an arm session, which was later ditched. Uh, and then another session got added. So there were seven, but not the seventh that we know. It was more like a 10th hour of more cleanup at the, at the end. And then there was the opera singer who came to Ida and said, look, I got this problem when I sing that my mouth pulls way over to one side, doesn't look good on stage. Can you fix that for me? And she said, no problem. So she went to work on his mouth uh, and discovered in the process that, oh my, his neck worked a whole lot better. So the seventh hour that, as we know it, got uh, put in there between the sixth and what had been the eighth, which was now the ninth and then she added a couple of more cleanup sessions in there eight and nine so what had been number seven and then became eight was now the tenth session so uh even for ida rolf the series was not a static thing yeah it's nice to hear that so if you just to close on this if there is something that you felt that the institute or any structural integration school needed to include what do you have advice or opinions in terms of managing so in an historically of involving 10 series and other schools out there have their own version of a series it's getting results but if there was another little kind of like but maybe from your level of expertise and experience with sure. the work so um, 
again, in my basic training, we were taught at, at each moment, uh, you must uh, find where you can work on this person that's going to make the most positive change for the whole person. So where's, where's the sweet spot at this moment? Because we recognize that when we work on anything, sure, there's change locally, but always there's change at a distance also. So where at each moment is that place that has the best leverage on the, on the whole person to make some, some change? Ida Rolf in her own work uh, did a lot of looking at people visually and uh, as we are all taught to do in our structural integration practice. She was also highly intuitive. However, intuition is a less easy thing to teach. So she taught people to see and even asserted that you can learn everything you need uh, by the contours of a person's body. Um, however, since her time, we've learned a bunch of other assessment methods, often from osteopaths, which give us more uh, keys to understanding things in the body. I was very interested when I started taking classes with Jean-Pierre Barral, that he said, at each moment, you must find the place you can work on the person that is going to make the most change for the whole person. And this sounded like an echo of what I was taught in my basic training in 1977. But there's a peculiar thing that sometimes two people saying the same words don't actually mean the same thing. So I made an experiment. If I use Baral's assessment methods to guide my sessions rather than the series, to what extent will the hallmarks of structural integration appear? Uh, will the lines appear? Will the good qualities of movement appear? And the answer was really well. So it turns out that the assessment methods that he was teaching uh, to find that, that sweet spot apply very well to, to our work. Uh, can you say a little more just because I'm, uh, I want to make sure I'm getting it. Are you saying that you were taking his methods and overlaying it onto a 10 series in that each, each of the 10 sessions you would sort of listen to what where the body spoke to you and do that? Or are you more or less saying you, you weren't even doing a, a 10 series? People would come and you would just sort of say, hey, let's see what here or something else. Right. So um, <clears throat> in using his assessment methods, that was rather than the, the 10 series. And in doing that, all of the overall um, features that we want to see with structural integration would appear uh, quite well in people's bodies and with not much effort, uh, not in the same sequence that they ordinarily would with a 10 series, but by the end of it, all of the hallmarks of organization uh, would be there. In, you know, by the way, I, I did train to the instructor level with uh, Baral, uh, with, with his work. And they have a name there for that uh, sweet spot of where we can work at each moment that's going to make the most positive change for the whole person. It's called the, the primary restriction or primary lesion. Primary here meaning only uh, this is the most fruitful place to work at this moment. It has nothing to do with how strong the restriction is or historically how old it is. It's only the sweet spot for working right now to really help the person. Primary restriction. Well, it's it's a good segue there because that seems, as I'm reading your, your book that just came out, that is what the introduction of the book talks about uh, is exactly what you've just said. Sorry to spoil the first first few pages of the book for anyone uh, and, and we, we will we will put a link to the book with a, a um a discount that people can can save to buy this great book but since that seems like a really beautiful segue as as part of the part of the book is talking about that as well as other other ways of of, of using you know manual work would you like to share a little bit about yeah both I guess but what the book's about but also how you came to to write it you bet. Yeah. So again, the title of the book is Assessment and Treatment Methods for Manual Therapists. 
subtitle, The Most Effective and Efficient Treatment Every Time. And this contains uh, 19 assessment methods and 24 uh, treatment methods, 24 different ways of, of handling tissue. Uh, about a third of the methods in it are ones that I learned from Baral. About a third of them are methods uh, from other osteopathic sources. And about a third of them are uh, new methods that, that I created. So, you know, there are uh, two major sections in, in the book are assessment methods and treatment methods. To talk a little bit about assessment methods, uh, here's, here's an analogy to, uh, to th this. Each assessment method provides some useful information. No assess one assessment method will tell us everything. No assessment method is perfect. Uh, it, can, it can give us good information or occasionally lead us astray. So it's important to always use more than one assessment method. So as an analogy, if I'm driving my car and I wanna change to another adjacent lane on the road, uh, let's say I'm gonna go to the, into the lane to the left, I'll look in my left outside mirror. Does that provide enough information to do that? No, it doesn't. I better look over my shoulder also, which will give me an overlapping data set. It'll show me some of the same things the mirror does, but it'll show me things wider, whereas the mirror will show me farther back. Does that provide enough information? Well, I better look in my inside rearview mirror also, which is going to give me a data set overlapping what the outside mirror does. So I have three overlapping data sets there. One may confirm something that I see in another, but anyone may show me something important that the other one, that another one doesn't. And so in my teaching and in the book, I tell people uh, always use several assessment methods to get where you, you want to go. Yeah. I really liked in your book and I'm, you know, I'm just in the beginning, but the, uh, the circle, square, triangle, oval, is that correct? That, that way yeah. you're thinking? Uh, yeah. Venn, Venn diagrams of, okay, uh, here's a rectangle. That's This is the universe of everything we could know about this this person or this situation and the, and the person. And within that, here's a little circle that represents what one test will tell us. And then we're going to have, we could draw in a triangle which overlaps the circle which provides us another data set, which is some of the same stuff the circle showed us, but some other stuff that it didn't. So the triangle might confirm what we'd seen with the circle, or it might show us something important that the circle didn't. Then you can extend that by putting in uh, more tests. Yeah. To talk a, a little bit more about that, uh, Baral has a, a way of getting to kind of the zone in the body that you need to work on and then coming in with other assessment methods to figure out exactly what's going on there, what tissue, what depth, and, and so forth. So that method for finding the area is called general listening. And it, it, there's an interesting relationship here to rolfing. Basically, you put your hand on top of a person's head, put a little pressure on, and if everything's working well, the person will be steady and springy with that little bit of pressure. But usually the person will bend, fold, collapse somewhere in the body. Uh, from Rolfing perspective, we're looking for where is there a lack of lift in the person's system? Baral uses other language for it, but from a Rolfing perspective, that's what we're doing. That's nice. That'll head you toward that sweet spot in the body. But I developed uh, two other ways of looking for the same thing. I had an idea one day, instead of pushing down, what happens if I lift up? And so I put my hand on somebody's occiput and the other hand under their uh, mandible and lift it up. And that gave me a similar but not identical um, data set in the body. And then I knew that uh, famous violin maker Antonio Stradivarius was famous for as he was shaping the back or the front of a violin for tapping on the wood and listening to the resonance of it 
as he shaped it. And I thought, huh. You know, and I started thinking about, okay, woodpeckers tap on trees to hear where the hollow place with the grub is inside, and then they'll go mining for it. Um, you know, if, so if this is good enough for, for Tony and making violins, can I learn something this way? And so it turns out that you can tap on the body. Uh, you have to do it in an interesting way where it's tap and stay, but relaxed. And you can both feel an echo back from where the primary restriction is and actually see a ripple out from where you tap. So now I have three different ways of looking for that uh, primary spot on the body. And often uh, the law points you to the same thing, but sometimes not. And if they don't, then there's another assessment method actually from Burrell, where you can compare any two restrictions in the body and find out which one is the uh, relative primary between the two. I want to bring in here that Ida um, uh, Rolf studied extensively with osteopaths on the way to developing her work. Uh, <clears throat> she acknowledged studying with osteopath Amy Cochran, and her son Richard said that it was after the six weeks workshop she took with Amy Cochran in Los Angeles in 1944 that she really started doing her work. She also studied extensively with well known osteopaths. A path, uh, Kenneth Little. So you know, she had some original things, including the series, but really the core of everything she's doing, her philosophy of therapeutics is all part of the osteopathic canon. What she did was bring the relationship of the body to gravity to the foreground, whereas that is a minor and often forgotten piece elsewhere in osteopathy. Thank you for that clarification. And did Dr. Ida Rolf go, I, we've heard, definitely heard throughout her history that she studied closely with osteopaths, but in a recent podcast, it was possibly mentioned that she was an osteopath? Um, <clears throat> no, Ida Rolf uh, did not do the full uh, training or ever have the degree of osteopath. Correct. It's right. interesting. Uh, Rosemary Fitas, who was for some time Ida Rolf's uh, personal secretary and later trained as a rolfer, after she'd been rolfing for some years, did go to osteopathic school and, and become an osteopath also. So I, I want to um, sort of bring bring it back a bit to uh, to the book. The book is not just for SI people, I would imagine, right? It could be for uh, numerous other type of people. Who who would who would who's your target audience? Who should, you know? Do you want to read the book? Yeah. Uh, again, the title is Assessment and Treatment Methods for Manual Therapists. So, basically, anybody who's working with their their hands uh, to try to improve alignment and flexibility in people's bodies uh, will find this book useful. Absolutely for my home uh, group of structural integrators, but uh, also for physical therapists, uh, osteopaths, uh, some massage therapists, uh, quite, a, quite a range of, of practitioners can benefit from this. Um, it, the, I talked some about the assessment side of it with the, the treatment methods in it. Some of the treatment methods are well-known uh, classics, for example, unwinding. And my goal there was to describe that in clear language and with useful illustrations associated with it. Um, some of the methods that I describe are classics which have been nearly forgotten and are little used. So I'm bringing some some uh, strong methods back to the foreground. For example, uh, the centralizing technique developed by osteopath Harold Hoover or William or, uh, Richard Van Buskirk's uh, reconstruction of an original Andrew Taylor Still uh, technique, Still being the, the guy who founded uh, osteopathy. Uh, and then, uh, 
as I took a look at a lot of assessment, a lot of treatment methods and studied, all right, how are these things like each other and how are they different from each other? This led me to develop several novel ones also, several new ways of, of handling tissue to get things done. Which brings up the question, so why would you want to have so many treatment methods? People get along fine in their practice sometimes with uh, one or two or, or three. Well, the reason is that at each moment for each person, for wherever you're working, while many, but not all methods may be effective, some of them are in that moment going to be more effective and more efficient than others. So they'll allow you to get things done more quickly and more completely. So it's useful to have more tools in your box. And um, in, a, in a similar regard, I guess it's similar. I don't actually know as much. You also have a class coming up um, in, a, in a few cities in the next uh, upcoming few weeks as of recording this. But the class is on something entirely different. Um, is, is there correlation and i know nikki can talk because she's actually taken this class i believe she's taken this class it could be confused but is there correlation to the book topic and what's being done in the class or are they sort of two entirely different things or other yeah i think the class you're talking about is uh, the functional methods uh, class series which is actually a series of three classes for four days each um and that is something that I have evolved over about a 20-year uh, period, um, teaching a collection of assessment and treatment methods. The book is derived from the, the classroom materials for that course. So it's a, an expansion of those. And henceforth, the book will be the textbook for that class series uh, also. That's convenient. Yeah. Uh, I have some other classes that I'm teaching right now. I was invited by an osteopathic school in Milan to develop a class for them on improving breath uh, for people. So the class is titled uh, Pulmonary Rehabilitation, which is an application of a lot of these methods to uh, regional and uh, functional things in the body where the, the focus here is not so much in the overall organization, but on improving breath. I will say also that along the way, I developed uh, some novel and uh, highly effective ways of improving joint mobility, working with joint capsules, and also their cousins' uh, bursas and tendon sheaths. Uh, and so again, this is a, a system-oriented application of the methods that are laid out in the book. I'm excited about the book because um, I took the pulmonary rehabilitation course and I've, um, like I mentioned in the introductory, I found it very, very helpful in just freeing up the breath and, find, and just connecting at a deeper level and I think what's also been fun about the, the, the work and the touch is because it's a little slower and intentional. I, I've just, the response that I've gotten from clients is that they're able to kind of dive deeper into the actual work, the touch that's being hap that's happening um, compared to the traditional, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to free up the breath and work into the intercostal space more like, I, yeah, working within the systems and the different membranes. And um, especially there's one technique that you talked about. And this is my, you know, might be a fun thing to kind of just tap into of, um, talking about working with the, the ribs and how bones, ribs, are way more um, bendy and manipulative, like uh, malleable than what we normally would think of. Because I think most people, because we only can think of like 
bones that we've kind of seen scattered out in the woods or if you're a meat eater and like, you know, eating a, you know, a rib or something, we have this strong orientation that bones are like really hard and brick-like where in the living body, they're not so much like that. Definitely not so much like that in the, in the living uh, body. Yeah. Um, living bones are, are connective tissue also. And in our, they're always have some flexibility to it. More about that in a moment. But they, we have been led astray in our understanding of bone by handling dead dry bone which has precisely the same relationship to living bone that jerky does to living muscle. <laughs> um, remember that when we were born, we didn't have any bone. We had cartilage. Uh, and it's, cartilage is connective tissue. Uh, it's a highly ordered and dense array of elastin and collagen, about equal amounts of the two. And as the bones begin to ossify, as we mature, the little mineral crystals, hydroxyaspatite, lie down in between the fibers in the bone matrix. And the fiber doesn't go away. The crystals aren't in the fiber. They're between the fibers. And the crystals mostly don't even link to each other. So they're just stiffeners in the fiber matrix. So that living bone uh, still retains quite a bit of uh, flexibility. Um, and some bones are more flexible than others, with ribs being the most flexible bones. Uh, they bend with every breath that we take, or should, uh, and uh, they bend with, with uh, trunk movement. Like any other connective tissue, they can become stiffened. Ever, we've all been bashed in the ribs somewhere uh, in the course of life. We fall down, we get bumped into seat belts uh, in a car accident, slap us across the chest. People actually crack ribs with hard coughing. Uh, so individual whole ribs can be stiff or you can have focal stiffness in a part of a rib. And because ribs are connective tissue, they respond to all of these same treatment methods that any other connective tissue does. The total amount of flexibility in them is less than some other tissues, but they should be have appropriate flexibility to them. Moving on from ribs for a moment, I wanna talk about the long bones in our legs. They need to be flexible and springy also. When we walk, the live load of coming down on a foot <clears throat> is six to seven times body weight. Do the arithmetic. It gets to be a large force. And we need several elements of shock absorption to manage that. Otherwise, every step would rattle our teeth. And one of those elements of shock absorption is the flexibility of the bones themselves. So as we land on a foot, the tibia and the femur actually bend a little bit like springs. And the loading of that spring is also part of what gives us our push off in the next part uh, of the gate. Now, pathology is illustrative. If one, the, one or more of those bones becomes stiff, so it's not flexible and springy anymore, then there's too much load on the joints, on the, the uh, ankle joint, on the knee, on the hip, all the way up into the back. And this uh, contributes to erosion of cartilage in the joints uh, themselves. So yes, working on bones is uh, often a very important part of the work. Makes me think actually this, this morning, uh, I, was, I have a client who um, came in for neck pain, uh, I mean, among other stuff, and he had, you know, self self-diagnosed plantar fascia. Uh, I didn't start at his feet, but at some point when I was working on his feet, really just doing small bone work in the feet because his the bones were stuck together, more or less. They weren't moving. And then we started to get a little bit of movement, some pops here and there, and his foot had more spring in it because the bones had more movement. The, the long bones uh, needed a little more. We got what we could. 
but what was, you know, we weren't working on his neck. And afterwards he was saying, wow, my, my neck feels much better. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, the, 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 this area was, was taking such a load that it wasn't able to, 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 to spread out because it was stuck for whatever reason. And um, yeah, bones are fascinating. Bones are, are fascinating. And you mentioned there about uh, getting more movement among the many bones in the foot. There are reasons we have all those joints in the foot. They're all there for a purpose. Uh, it's also fascinating that if you assess the flexibility of a bone and notice that it's stiff and assess the mobility of the joints of that bone, then when you take the stiffness out of the bone quite reliably, the mobility of the joints uh, Im improves. There may be additional things you need to do with the joints, but always there's improvement in joint mobility when you take the, the stiffness out of the bone itself. Many people think, oh, bone, uh, it's this hard stuff. I must have to work on this really hard to get some change in it. Nope, you don't. They, they will respond to uh, rather light forces in, in working on them. Well, maybe... Just from because of your osteopathic mind and just linking in a little bit from the bone perspective, I was I took a class um, last weekend. It was a gyrotonic uh, class focused on osteoporosis. And we were talking about, again, similar to what we were just sharing here about how bone is quite more malleable than we think. And the other thing that came up is how, um, I can't think of the name of it right now, but how the bones have a lot to do with in regulating our um, nervous system, that there is a nervous system hormone that secretes from the bones and how if we're stiff and stiff in our bones, how that in itself can be disruptive in um, regulating our, our hormone or uh, not our hormones, our um, nervous system. Yeah, I've seen a couple of articles along those lines recently, and I think that's really uh, interesting of uh, how stiffness in the bone could uh, uh, affect the nervous system, particularly the autonomic uh, nervous system. Um, and I, I think of a, some of the two-way streets in here. Uh, let's, I'd like to shift from bones to breath for, for a moment. Um, an ordinary response to an anxiety-provoking situation is to hold one's breath. Not necessarily. Sometimes people will go the other way and hyperventilate, but <gasps> holding one's breath is an ordinary feature of that. But if the breath gets limited by other kinds of things so that it's not possible to take a full breath, that is not being able to breathe well is anxiety provoking. So it's a two-way uh, street there. Uh, so hormones that the bones secrete affect the nervous system, uh, but also you know, if the bones are stiff and they're not springy, that gives us a feeling of being less resilient uh, in the world. Right. That's what I was um, connecting as well, coming back. I don't know. My big thing, my common denominator with all the different skills that I've learned in my continued education with both the hands-on work of manual therapy and the movement, because I'm very big. Uh, movement person is always trying to get the person adaptable. Yes. And, you know, we're going to have moments in our life that we're super stressed and not to put, you know, make that we can't go through life, never experience stress, right. It's part of the living, but not staying stuck in it. And also the same of like, you know, when we're super happy, be like really enjoy the happiness, but know that this isn't going to, going to stay forever either and that we can safely swing between these two and still kind of reside in some balance of homeostasis and I just through my you know I've been at this for 21 years and it's just 
so fun because you're constantly, I don't, for me, I'm constantly learning how to up level my skills just to promote adaptability. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a huge thing. Uh, we must be adaptable in life. In, in fact, if we look at humans as a species, uh, one of our great strength as a species is our adaptability. Consider all the different environments on the planet that we figure out how to live in. The, you know, uh, <clears throat> penguins are fabulous, but they live in one environment, Antarctica and the very tip, southern tip of South America. They wouldn't do well in the, in the tropics. Uh, ditto for, for polar bears. Uh, and you can take other, a lot of other uh, examples, but humans seem to be able to set up camp almost anywhere on the planet and figure out how to make it work. So let's go to strength and, and uh, uh, upregulate our adaptability. So where are you heading next? Where, um, I, I, from, from where I can see, I know you're comfortable at home right now. Where are you traveling for your, for your classes? I've got a uh, three-stop uh, teaching tour coming up later this month. Uh, uh, first stop will be in uh, Boston, where I will be teaching the uh, uh, pulmonary rehabilitation class that, that you took, uh, Nikki, uh, in a slightly modified form. The, the folks in Milan who wanted me to design that thing originally uh, wanted a three-day uh, class and uh, so uh, I always over prepare for classes so I put everything in there and we couldn't quite get everything done in three days uh, and so now it's going to be four days so we'll have more time to practice things and a little bit more about the diaphragm also in it. Next stop will be near uh, Exeter, uh, England. It's actually a, a lovely Regency era house that's been restored and is a uh, retreat center at uh, Triverton. Uh, and they wanted, the UK Rolfers Association wanted a two-day introduction to my joint bursa tendon work. The full program is 13 days of uh, instruction, but I'll give them a, a good start on that. And then uh, the third stop will be in Innsbruck, where I'm going to be teaching module one of the uh, functional methods class. Uh, again, the uh, material, which is essentially uh, my new book. And the follow-up two modules are booked for next year uh, uh, in Innsbruck. Where's module one being taught? Innsbruck, Austria. Oh, okay. Sounds like a sounds like a great tour, not just because of locations, but that for you, you're not doing the same thing at every place. It's kind of nice that you'll go in and get to have not just a variety of people, but a variety of what you're you're teaching. Because uh, I know that teaching the same thing is is great with different groups, but it can get a little bit um, it, it can get wearing and and or sometimes forget. Oh, was I doing this with this group? Or was it with that group? And in this, you you you're going to have to be on your toes, and and that sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, that is a, a pleasant feature of the of this tour that I get to teach a different different thing in each location. Well, one thing that's interesting because uh, you mentioned that these are all uh, so well. The Boston one I don't think is, but the Europe, the European, and the English one are both from different. School, like there's the Europe, the Rolf Gill, the Rolf Association of England, and then there's the European uh, Rolf Association. It's kind of nice that these are happening at the same time. My guess is they weren't, there wasn't communication across both of those schools, but I like the idea of that, of helping to, to bridge. And I don't know if there ever was a bridging between all the different, between Boulder and, and Brazil and in Europe in England, but it's kind of nice. At least now we have this thing where you're going between these, and maybe that'll be a, a little bit of a prompt for these uh, institutions to be like, "Hey, we could actually do more together." And <laughs> and also, I mean, it, it's it's great to have Americans going to Europe. It's also great 
to have other cultures coming to America. One, it's two of two of the classes I've taken that I've really benefit, benefited from were having uh, people from other cultures teaching, because I think that's a big part of of the work is not just being in a single culture, although many of our clients will fit that, but of sort of looking at humanity as a whole. Yes, in, indeed. Uh, you know, there, I did uh, teach the functional method series at the uh, European Rolfing Association in, in Munich over the last couple of uh, years. And I'm now offering that in, uh, for the Austrian Rolfing Association. And of course, all the Austrian uh, Rolfers are uh, ERA uh, members also. And, and there will be a significant number of uh, Swiss in in the class in Austria and and a couple of Germans uh, also and I think as I mentioned uh, one woman who's actually flying in from Alaska to take the uh, the class so yes um, along those lines in the era when I trained as a Rolfer in 1977 there was precisely one structural integration school in the world uh, Rolf Institute in Boulder Colorado. Um, Joseph Heller was president of the Rolf Institute at that time. Uh, Peter Melchior was my practicing instructor and he would take off to form the guild. So as these various schisms and splinters into more schools happened, uh, I found myself with teachers and friends in several schools. And I've done my best over the years to maintain relationships with people in the various schools uh, and have enjoyed my role of moving information around uh, between schools of helping things to be shared uh, among them. Yeah, I was fortunate enough and I'm, I don't remember or even probably ever really knew the why's but when I did my training, the Rolf, and I did mine here in the Rolf, at the Rolf, well, at the time, the Rolf Institute in Boulder, now Dr. Ida Rolf Institute. But it was the, the school, we had the U.S. location, Japan, Brazil, Australia, and I think Munich or Germany was maybe one of them. But that was, we all, I think it was the only requirement is when you had to do your foundations here in Boulder, but then you could go and do your phase two and three elsewhere. And so it was exciting because I ended up going to Brazil because I wanted the dual certification. But there was conversations of how like, you know, and this was forever ago, so I can't really remember, but I just remember the chitter chatter that we would have and be like, oh, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to go to. Some stayed in Boulder, but some really wanted to go to Australia or Germany or wherever. Um, so there was a, a bleep in time where we were all kind of one school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. I, I uh, had, hadn't been aware that there was that era where you had to do uh, module one in Munich, or pardon me, in <laughs> Boulder and then go on. I could be mistaken about that. I could be mistaken. And maybe that was just for the U.S. students. But um, point is, is there was freedom and there was there was communication between the different schools around the, the world. Um, you could and there was still, great benefit in that. You could still, when I did my phase three, I had the chance to go to Brazil. But the issue was if I went to Brazil, it wasn't CompTA certified. So... My, my my technically my phase three would be in Brazil. I I would have actually gotten graduated from the Brazil, and I wouldn't be able to to have the same um, the same effect that being in in the U.S. would would give me just from from Compta. But a lot of uh, not a lot, but I know a fair amount who of U.S. trained Rolfers who are doing their advanced work through the European uh, Rolf Association, and I. I'd actually planned to do that this year because there's some great teachers lined up, but uh, wasn't able to for a few for a few reasons. Uh, but I think that that's a lovely way of doing it. Vice either way of having doing your advanced in one place and you know your beginner in somewhere else, just to 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 learn more. But no matter how you do, it's great. Yes, um, <clears throat> coming back to 
the communication among schools, uh, not only in the Rolf world, but the larger structural integration world. Um, one of the things that negotiated with when I was teaching my functional method series at the European Rolfing Association in Munich was to uh, allow um, <clears throat> graduates from other YASI recognized structural integration schools to attend uh, my class at the ERA. It was something that they hadn't done before and they used my class as a as a test case to see how that would be. So there were some uh, European Guild for Structural Integration students in uh, my class there. Bravo. Yeah, that's nice to hear. And now the, the Guild and the, we're, we're, I think, moving to a step of reunifying now that the Guild can use the term Rolfing. I'm not fully up on all the details of that and the, and the, uh, how that plays out. I know that the Guild for Structural Integration in the U.S. Uh, closed its doors. And as part of the negotiations around that, people who had graduated from the Guild had an option to uh, become members of the, the Rolf Institute and be able to use the, the term Rolfing. I don't know how many of them took up that that option, um, but my and but my impression is that guild graduates who did not sign on for that and start paying dues to the Rolf Institute still may not use the word Rolfing. There is that truth as well. Yeah. Well, Jeff, <laughs> as as we are sort of rounding rounding up the time, is there anything else you you want to share a plug or talk about? Um, one of the, the features of uh, the, the book is in studying the various ways of changing tissue, the treatment methods. I spent a lot of hours sitting in a library and thinking about, okay, so in what ways are these methods like each other? And in what ways do they differ from each other? And this led to my developing a, uh, a six axis classification system for treatment methods. Uh, how much force is used? How much speed? How much constraint do we put on the tissue? How directive are we with it? Um, and a couple of other things that are sort of related to, to force, but have their, their own names. And doing that actually led to my developing some of the new techniques. It was a little bit like the early days of developing the periodic chart of the elements. The elements are put on there, but then people could see, huh, there's a blank spot here where there should be something. And so they went looking for, for elements. So I, in the book, there's a description of that and some thought about how other people might continue to be creative and develop more treatment methods. I like that. I like how you kind of lended, lended your expertise and your commitment to, to bringing this work out there, but how it can be building blocks. Yeah. Yes. Brothers. Well, thank you. I, I can, um, I know I have been sharing your techniques with students who have been coming to receive work with me and they're like, well, what, what is that? I'm not learning that in school. And I'm like, well, not yet, but <laughs> <laughs> here, I'll show you a little bit. So it's fun. And yeah. the treatment methods that I showed you in the pulmonary rehab class, yep, sure, they were useful for working on breath, but they were useful for working on anything else in the body also. They're not, they're not regionally specific like that. Well, I, I like to hear what you're saying about that uh, the periodic table 
sort of way. And uh, what I enjoy about it is, to me, it actually really ties in similar to how I understand what Dr. Roth was doing and what A.T. Still was doing, where it's not really about a specific technique of do this and then do that, but a more principled way of understanding these are sort of systems at play and these are ways of working within systems. Uh, And once you understand that, it's not so much about do this and then this will happen uh, as much as um, something else, which I don't really have the good words for at this point, but of how we interrelate with the, the, the being that allows for things to, to, to go. So it's really lovely to hear. Very much. So everything I teach is about a, a very, um, sensitive tactile dialogue with the the person um one of the along those lines one of the things that people often ask is okay you got all these treatment techniques so when do you use which ones Uh, certain ones useful for certain tissues and conditions it's like well no actually it doesn't map that way very well uh there are a few exclusions like don't use the higher force ones on tissues that either either inherently or situationally more fragile but it's very idiosyncratic of what's going to be the most fruitful way to work in each moment. And there are three ways to figure that out. One of them is try something. And if it isn't working well, try something else. And another one is uh, Baral teaches, and I have in my book a way that you can actually dialogue with the body and uh, ask it questions in a decision tree to arrive at it. But there's another thing that happens after one has been working in this way for a while that then when you contact a person's uh, body, their body will often begin to move in a particular way and will guide you to the technique that's going to be most useful to it. So those are sort of three stages of sensitivity that can increase. Sorry, I, I, I love what you're just saying, because as my as a practitioner, I've gotten really way, as I've kind of been tracking this, way more comfortable in the moment of stillness and just waiting, because I will be working and be like, all right, what's next? And I'll kind of like, sometimes we'll have a moment of like, oh my God, there's so many options. And then I'll just sit there and be like, all right. And I'll just share with my clients, be like, I'm kind of waiting. There's options. There's lots of options, but me standing here isn't not not isn't because I don't know what to do next. I'm waiting for your body to guide me. <laughs> Absolutely. Sometimes waiting and stillness are just what's to do. Um, for those who have uh, studied some Tai Chi along the way, uh, for many Tai Chi teachers, the most f- frequent comment or correction that they will give a a somebody learning tai chi is way not doing yeah and then i to sort of build on uh what nikki's saying there's this thing that what i'm hearing with you and it's always it's kind of funny because i think when people first hear it what they're hearing almost to say as well this is very analytic there's all these things you need to do it's very like intellectualized but actually, the way that I understand it, and I'm, what I'm hearing through both of you, is that it's actually not very conceptual. That actually, when you're in that that space, it is what you've sort of learned as an embodied way of of moving. You're responding with this other being, and we're not thinking, "Oh, if I do this, then this will happen, and this will happen," and planning out five steps as much as, "Oh, this is unfolding, and the next thing to arrive is is this." And and that's, I think, really hard to to explain um i'm curious when i when i do get to sit in your class how that how that goes because there really is a bit of a not to use cliche words but a paradigm shift it sounds it all sounds and and a lot of my clients when i talk with them they say well this is so intellectual and i'm saying it's it's not (laughs) like it sounds that way i get that but once you can like shift it it isn't intellectual it's really just about this uh this way of being with presence no 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 pun meant with our our podcast show name, but really that's what it's about. And that just 
like being in that relation it and and you know and whatever we have learned before that comes in as oh yeah jeff has taught this thing before this might make sense and it's not like sitting there wondering what's next but just responding yes there are actually useful ways to to think about it so you you can find substantial intellectual elements in my, in my book uh, but it's akin to learning to play music. We have music theory. So you can learn all of these intellectual things about music, but that is to lead you into being able to be in the moment uh, with it. And along the those lines, uh, one of the assessment methods that I work with people on is uh, intuition, which is you know not knowing knowing through what sensory channel you got it. And there are ways to cultivate that in people. Andrew Taylor Still, the original osteopath, really cultivated his analytic ability and parallel with it, really cultivated his intuition. So he had both of them working for him. Ditto for Ida Rolf. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, and I'm sorry if it came off as if I was shunning uh... Yeah, intellectual because I'm, I'm not it's very it's very important um but what you're also saying is one of the things that i'm current i get upset at sometimes which is a practice for me is a lot of these people teaching the practice and and not getting past the intellectual and so they, they, they've they've studied all that and they can recite it but they they're not quote unquote embodying it as i would say it is and and that's what's it's it's not one or the other. It's it's actually both. You 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 need, and I mentioned this in other talks. You need the philosophy. You need the 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 the, the intelligentsia. You need the, the the theory on one part. It's not all of it, because um, you can have that and still do nothing with it. And then there is this what you're calling intuition. Uh, that's also really important. But it, you can't just rely on on that. It's about it's about bridging uh, both of them together. And and that that aspect of the Wu Wei, the um, as I know it, the effortless doing is is really a big part. But that again is many people talk about and they teach the the Wu Wei, but they themselves have never actually experienced it. <laughs> yes, true. And as with so many things in life, things that appear to be an or choice are actually an and. So yes, intellect and embodiment and being in the moment here here well i i think i I, i'm guessing both of us could easily talk to you for a lot longer um and i'm sure people could listen for a lot longer and and again we say this sometimes that maybe that'll be a third call with jeff but i have clients to see i'm guessing nikki has clients to see um so i want to thank you for your time you're most welcome it's been a pleasure yeah thank you very much both of you Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Jeff at jeffreybirch.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us, and we greatly appreciate all your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching Into Presence. Thanks, and bye for now.